between a great imagination and just a simple lack of artistic discipline. But here I think what Benders has done is given himself permission to make a very shapeless, formless picture that might have worked. Maybe it would have worked in a different way, but it doesn't here because, in the, as you mentioned, in the first two-thirds of the picture, he tries to make us believe it's some kind of a genre film. Welcome back. You're listening to Isle Seats, the world's number two ranked Siskel and Ebert review show on TV Today, part of the Hot Dog Code Network. I'm your host, Trop Hole Tumbledip, and this week we'll review Roger and Gene as they review movies like uh, Free Jack, starring Emilio Estevez and Mick Jagger of the rock band, um, sorry, um, The Rolling Stones as well as Rebecca De Mornay in The Hand That Rocks the Cradle, um, an interview with Kevin Costner about the movie JFK, as well as uh, Vim Vendors, Until the End of the World, uh, which we heard them talking about just there. Tracking down Free Jacks is a warrior scientist played by Mick Jagger, who shares the cynical values of his disintegrating society. So, Free Jack, if you don't remember, is the 1992 uh, movie starring Emilio Estevez, Mick Jagger, Rene Russo, and uh, Anthony Hopkins. I feel like this is maybe his first project after Silence of the Lambs. I could be wrong. I have nothing at stake in being wrong here. So go for it. Based on the 1959 science fiction novel by Robert Sheckley called Immortality Incorporated. The year is 2009, the distant future. And uh, the pollution in the air has become so bad that human bodies are compromised. So they have decided, um, using time travel, to bring healthy bodies from the past, a.k.a. 1991, and, uh, and then install brains from the future into bodies of the past. Maybe if you've got time travel figured out and your world is a dystopia, maybe you want to go back and deal with that instead of just bringing the bodies. Who am I to judge? Travis searches through the future for his girlfriend from the past, played by Rene Russo. When he finds her, she's held up pretty good after 18 years. Only her hair has changed. And now she's a powerful executive in the company that runs the world. Will you stop? Now, I don't know if you remember Free Jack. I barely do. It's the kind of movie that I would have really enjoyed when I was 12 or 13, but I think I was 14 when it came out and was not super into it. Um, it's, it's kind of on that, uh, you know, range of uh, running man through Johnny Mnemonic movies of, uh, you know, the future dystopia, chase sequences, high-tech stuff, uh, jumpsuits, and uh, there's usually at least one rocker in the movie. Uh, in this case, it is uh, David Johansson, a.k.a. Buster Poindexter, um, of the New York Dolls, and he also had some hits as Buster Poindexter in the 80s. Uh, so he's the he's the token rocker. You know, you may remember, like, some of these movies... Um, 
you know, Henry Rollins and uh, Mick Fleetwood uh, are in these movies. Um, common common appearances. Ice-T, you gotta have Ice-T in your dystopian sci-fi thriller. Um, but, uh, you know, these guys aren't really... Roger and Gene are not really that into it. Um, in fact, you know, Roger starts out talking, you know, he's kind of, he likes the concept. And you hear Gene kind of just like snort like, oh, 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 oh. And then uh, Roger says his piece, uh, which is similar to mine. I'm not going to, you know, spoil it for you. But similar to mine, Roger and I, similar lines of thinking um, on this movie at least. And then Gene goes for the jugular. And the writing, it is like every other science fiction, futuristic piece, Roger. And I really am tired of this group because they all do the same thing. They take all the problems of the present, just exaggerate them a little bit, and give us this alienating society. Why doesn't somebody in, in, in go for a futuristic exercise where the world is better? Why don't they make that leap? It seems so obvious to have a world that's so much better and then indict the present. They want to indict the present by making us uh, well, see more present. Gene honestly goes on uh, a, a pretty good tear here. Um, it goes on for quite a while. Uh, they end up not having time to get to their uh, reviews of The Hand That Rocks the Cradle or Juice or uh, Cliffhanger, which didn't even come out that year. I guess they got an early sneak peek, which is actually a, a, that was a different review show that was on sometimes. I think that one was on PBS. So the quality. Anyway, Gene just really lays into uh, Free Jack and, and goes off on a few tangents um, that are incredibly sensitive to uh, the year of 1992. I won't bore you with the details. But finally, he finds a landing point, and uh, ultimately, um, you know, the, the Emilio Estevez character, the race car driver, is, is flung into the future uh, 18 years from 1991, and Gene ultimately decides that 18, even 20 years, is not a big deal. So what? Uh, which leads us to a, a rather bittersweet uh, denouement here, uh, which I'll, I'll let you hear for yourself. And I, well, I mean, in other words, it's not like he's gone centuries. It's, you know... Well, 20 years would still be amazing to me. It would be amazing. If I, I woke just, up uh, in 20 years and I was still it, here across from you. You got it. The next movie uh, we're going to review, uh, the review of, is uh, Until the End of the World, the 1992 Vim Vendors movie, um, starring Max von Sydow and um, a number of other people. This film was notable, uh, as many films in 1992 were, uh, for the soundtrack. 1992 was a great year for soundtrack movies. Uh, the cinema itself, not always great, but soundtracks, smashing. Here are uh, some of the people, just a, a handful of the alternative music superstars who appeared on the soundtrack of Until the End of the World. Uh, Talking Heads, 
Nana Cherry, Lou Reed, Cam, R.E.M., Elvis Costello, Nick Cave and the Bad Seas, Patti Smith, Fred Sonic Smith, Dave Pesha Mode, Jane Sibri and Katie Lang together, kind of a Canadian, you know, super folk trio with only two people, Daniel Langlois, another Canadian, T-Bone Burnett, uh, before he would go on to become uh, making movie music in his own right, and then, of course, you uh, 2 who were, you know, probably feeling pretty fortunate to be part of this prestigious alternative rock project. Then he spends a lot of time trying to explain the plot backwards so that we'll know what the loose ends meant. And by the end of the film, frankly, I just didn't care. Well, you know what? I mean, frankly, William Hurt in Altered States, one of his first pictures, mm -hmm. did this kind of a story in a, in a much more rigorous yeah. way and a much better film. So. so not much good to say about Until the End of the World, a movie that... You know, I, I wouldn't necessarily say um, I enjoyed it, but it was, you know, I definitely watched it and definitely uh, didn't have any regrets about watching it. Definitely um, would would watch it again if if it came on. I don't know if I'd seek it out, but uh, I'd, I'd check in with it again. Um, why not? It's been... It's been... Uh, Almost 30 years, my friends. You're listening to Aisle Seats here on the Hot Dog Code Network, uh, the world's number two uh, Siskel and Ebert review show on TV today. I'm your host, Tumthorn Stumbleweed. Next up, uh, we have the movie Juice, the directorial debut of Ernest Dickerson, who had previously been best known as cinematographer on Spike Lee classics like Do the Right Thing and Malcolm X, as well as She's Gotta Have It. Uh, little known fact, he also uh, was the cinematographer on Brother from Another Planet, 1984 classic that uh, is under-discussed these days. Um, if you get a chance to see that one, um, maybe it's streaming on something you have a subscription to, uh, definitely check that out. Uh, dig the crates for that 1984 gem. Um, anyway, Juice um, is kind of an urban uh, story. Early appearances from Tupac Shakur, Omar Epps, um, and uh, music by Hank Shockley and the Bomb Squad, um, which is uh, Public Enemies uh, production team. So definitely a very, like, you know, legit pedigree on this movie. Ebert, um, who kind of introduces the movie, he, he likes it. He's into it. Um, he really likes the message, which is about handguns and the way handguns um, are cheap and available on the city streets of 1992. Um, Siskel, on the other hand, thinks it's, it's kind of overdone. And he's, he's seen similar movies that handle the material better, handle the message better. Um, but the review features one of my, my favorite things where they start to, to argue about 
whether or not the movie's any good, and Siskel kind of manages to talk over Ebert and say, no, 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 I get it, I just don't like it, which is kind of one of the classic moves, is that Ebert kind of believes that the reason anybody wasn't wouldn't like what he's into is because they don't get it. Siskel is like, I, I get it, I just don't like it. Classic, um, you know, this is what we watch, this is what we watch it for. It's weird to think about a movie like The Hand That Rocks the Cradle uh, being the most popular movie in America today. Um, you know, considering it's just, it's nothing but blockbusters. We we create blocks solely to be busted nowadays, whereas uh, it used to be we lived on the block, um, and now we simply build them and bust them. Uh, but once upon a time, and, you know, I, I don't want to be... Um, you know, over-represent the hand that rocks the cradle. It's, it is, you know, it's a exploitative uh, thriller. Um, you know, I mean that, you know, fairly neutrally. Um, but com- compared to, you know, the, the, the cinematic thrill rides uh, we get now, um, you know, it's very minimally branded. There are no hand that rocks the cradle happy meals. Um, nobody... Uh, that I know of has ever demanded uh, a Hand That Rocks the Cradle prequel or written fan fiction about the Julianne Moore character, for example, um, who really gets one of the most iconic lines in the movie. Um, Gene uh, definitely picks up on that uh, to his credit. Uh, don't want to disrespect Gene. But um, it's it was a simpler time in 1992 when a movie like that could be the most popular movie and and um... what's great here is that Roger and Jean uh, really get into what is kind of their you know, foundational argument about, about, you know, Gene's point of view versus Roger's point of view. Um, really, the, the, you know, this is an elemental argument that they have uh, vis-a-vis the hand that rocks the cradle, and it's, it's beautiful to unfold. Let's, let's take a listen. What newspapers do you read? Fun fact, in this episode, uh, Roger Ebert is wearing an almost identical outfit to the one he wears in a 1996 episode, four years later, where they review uh, 12 Monkeys from Dusk Till Dawn, Eye for an Eye, um, and other, other, um, something, something else? Maybe? Probably? So, next up, uh, the the show, the episode, uh, 
transitions to interview with um, Gene Siskel talking to Kevin Costner about uh, JFK, the Oliver Stone movie. Oh, it's actually Roger Ebert. Um, what do I know? What do, what am I? Do, what do I even know? What am I doing here? It's kind of a nice throwback to when movies cost seven dollars. Is there, was there really a tax on JFK? A special tax on JFK, the JFK tax. Uh, so it was seven dollars and twenty-five cents. But um, anyway, we don't we don't really care about the interviews on on the Siskel and Ebert show that much here on aisle seats. They're kind of uh, beside the point. So not to dismiss the interview altogether, it does give us this perhaps the the finest moment of really a, a really excellent vintage. Uh, Siskel and Ebert episode that has everything you want um, in any episode of Siskel and Ebert. Uh, some drama, some insightful comments, and Gene Siskel's, uh, you know, really immaculate pronunciation of common day words. Have a listen. He did uh, Oliver Stone more of a favor than he did himself playing this, and I think he could probably know that going in, so I admire it too, because Oliver Stone is borrowing, really, Barring, good stuff. Gene Siskel, R.I.P. A legend, a goat. Um, I admire Gene Siskel. This has been Isle Seats here on the Hot Dog Goat Network. Uh, thanks for listening. My name is Triple Thicker Binwit, and uh, stay tuned. Next week we'll have a brand new episode of Isle Seats, the Internet's number two Siskel and Ebert review show. Once again, my name is Tumhorn Thumping, and uh, I thank you very much for listening. Without you, this this show doesn't exist.